approved. And if anybody who uh, cares to use uh, childcare, we have it from six months old to, to, to two years, to three years, uh, three? Something like that, three? Do I have four? Right. Three and a half, three and a half, we're here, three and a half. Good morning, church. <clears throat> um, it is good to be with you. Um, thanks, Mark, for re-envisioning us for the good work of what the ranch is doing down there, Ranch of 3M, and I'm glad we have a chance to partner with them. If you could turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. <clears throat> we are, we're in a sermon series, um, if you didn't know, um, or if you're new. Uh, on, uh, we're in a sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and uh, today we're going to continue to follow the, the author's train of thought from last week. Uh, last week we heard how the author of Hebrews um, uh, warned his audience that just because he started off well uh, and were, seemed to be a part of the people of God didn't mean they were going to finish well and, or that they were legitimately a, a true part of the people of God. They might have sung his praises as Psalm uh, 95 begins. They sing his praises and there's a warning lest your hearts become hard and um, rebel against God. So the author quoted that psalm, warns Israel, or warns his audience uh, about Israel who failed to enter um, the rest that God had promised them. So now the author picks up that theme of entering God's rest. So Israel failed to enter it. We're now going to pick up that theme about entering God's rest. So we're going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 today, and then we'll pray for God's help as we, um, as we hear the preaching of the word. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's divine word to us. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the, day, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Lord, help us understand your word this morning. Uncover um, the truths that you have um, given us. Help us understand your heart. Change, 
change our hearts in the way that we see you and, and the promises that you give and the warnings that you give and the exhortations that you give and the hope that you give. Glorify Christ this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Um, for those who don't know, Becca and I are moving um, this week into a townhouse, which is rather exciting for us. By God's grace, we're leaving the market of renting, and we're entering the market of home ownership, which sounds joyful. I know, yay! <laughs> we're going to see just how hard that is in the, in the days to come, I'm sure. But Josiah is going to move out of our walk-in closet, which is getting rather small for him, and he's going to have his own bedroom. Um, and we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're even going to have in-unit laundry, um, which is just going to be a huge blessing. I'm not having to lug that elsewhere to go do it, especially for Becca. So huge blessing. We're super excited. But as much of a blessing as it is to be moving, and it is, um, it's, it's certainly taken a lot of work. Um, Becca has done so much packing uh, to make us ready to move. Everything's in boxes that we don't critically need right now. Um, Josiah, um, what am I saying? Yeah, he's, he, well, he's just been running around, I guess, the whole time. Um, I've, I, I personally have been amazed by the amount of paperwork um, that, <laughs> that goes into this. We're not even selling a place we're buying, but I've never signed so many documents in my life, and I haven't even gotten to closing. Um, and then there's just all the coordination. There's the realtor and the lender and the inspector and the title officer and the insurance agent, and I didn't even know any of those titles before I went into this whole route. So there's a lot of work. Uh, to, to enter our new home, it will be restful. We're going to enjoy being there, but it's taking a lot of work to get there first. God's word promises a far better rest, a far, a far better rest than owning a townhouse. Um, and that rest is available to every one of us today. Um, but like moving into a townhouse, let's say, entering God's rest does take work. It, it, it's not automatic. It, it takes effort. An author of Hebrews, and in fact, God himself wants, wants to make sure that we don't, we don't fail to enter that rest, that we don't fail to obtain the rest that God offers. This rest doesn't come by default. He wants to make sure we don't miss out. Now, today, you may be drained or distracted. Um, I'm often distracted. Um, I'm distracted this morning. And so when you can hear something where the author of Hebrews is calling you to strive, you think, I don't have energy for that. I, I, don't, I don't have the mental bandwidth. Um, but let me assure you, what we're striving for is God's rest. And God's rest is always worth striving for because it is so good. Just like the townhouse that will, that will be worth moving into for all the, all the effort of hunting and applying and packing and moving, God, entering God's rest will be totally worth the effort. So we hope to see that today. God has a rest for us. He has a rest for us, and we must strive to enter it. So we're going we're gonna to learn more about God's rest today by looking at four aspects of his rest, four aspects. And they are the warning about God's rest, the nature of God's rest, the, abil- the availability of God's rest, and then the exhortation regarding God's rest. So let's start with the warning about God's rest, the warning about God's rest. Here's the warning. It's possible to hear the good news about God's rest, and yet fail to enter it. Verse 1 says, Let us fear, 
lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That is, failed to reach God's rest. Okay, but what does it mean to fail to reach God's rest? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us an example. Um, Verses 1 and 2 fall on the heels of chapter 3, which we kind of talked about a little bit. Uh, Chapter 3 is where Israel taught, or sorry, where, not Israel, where the author of Hebrews talked about Israel's unbelief. Okay, but what did Israel's unbelief pertain to? What did they fail to believe? Well, they failed to believe the good news that they had received. Verse 2 says this, For good news came to us just as to them, just as to Israel. So Israel received good news, okay? What was that good news? What good news did they receive that they, that they failed to believe? Well, the author of Hebrews probably has in mind Numbers 13 and 14 here. In Numbers 13, the Lord commanded Moses, this is when the people of Israel have come up out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, okay? Um, um, The Lord commanded Moses now to send spies into Canaan, the land of promise, to go scope it out, to check out the place. They did so, and then they bring back this report, okay? This is the report from the spies. It says, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Okay, so now by this point, Israel had already uh, been miraculously delivered from Egypt. Uh, they, had, they had crossed the Red Sea. Uh, the Egyptian army was, was swallowed up by two giant walls of water collapsing down on them, them and their chariots and their horses. So they had already seen God do that a whole Egyptian army running after them. They were you know, fearful for their lives. And they had actually already been, that wasn't really their battle. They kind of just watched God wipe out an entire army. Um, that should build their faith. But then he, he also used them uh, um, to, to battle the Amalekites who attacked Israel. Um, and that's where, um, that's where Moses had to keep his arms up. And uh, I think it was Aaron and maybe Joshua who, who had to help raise his hands the whole day. And as long as his hands were up, they prevailed against the Amalekites. And if his hands dropped, the Amalekites would prevail against them. It was a sign of God acting powerfully and miraculously to deliver his people from incredible foes who otherwise they wouldn't stand a chance against. So that's their background. They've already seen God do that. So when they hear this report that there's foes in the land, you would hope that they would think, no problem, we've seen God do this before. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. Great. But rather than rejoicing in the report that they brought, that, that this land was in fact just as good as God had said it was, it actually is flowing with milk and honey, um, they instead did not believe that God would give them the land. That was not the reaction. Their reaction was disbelief. Numbers 14.1 says that, that in response to the Israel, uh, to, to spies' report, Israel uh, did this. It says, all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. This was supposed to be good news, but they wept. Rather than rejoicing, the land that God promised them was full of good things, and rather than being full of faith that, that he was sure to, to lead them in and to conquer their enemies, they instead wept because they feared the inhabitants, and because they failed to believe that God would deliver the Canaanites into their hands, just like he promised that he would. Hebrews 4, verse 2 says, in response you know, to, of, of Israel, it says, the message they heard, they heard that message from the spies, the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? 
because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is, the message didn't benefit them because they didn't believe it. They didn't think it was true. That makes me think this idea of hearing something and not believing it to be true. It makes me think of my workplace. Um, recently at my job, HR stopped by. Um, they're doing their you know, annual, hey, get ready to enroll for benefits for next year. So um, for health insurance, they offer, they offer two different plans. They have a traditional plan and a high deductible plan. Now, with the way that my company does it, no matter how you slice it, the high deductible plan is better than the traditional plan. It, it, it's true whether you have no medical expenses the whole year or if you hit your out-of-pocket maximum for 10 years straight. The high deductible plan is straight up better than a traditional plan. Did all the math. I like that stuff. <laughs> HR did the math. We're an engineering company. You would think, okay, these people understand the math. But they still offer both plans. HR still has both, and people still choose the traditional plan. And, and why? Why don't people choose the high deductible? Well, because people simply can't believe, even if they're showing the numbers, even if they're walked through all the steps, that the high deductible plan is better. I'm not saying it's always better. It depends on what you're, you know, in, in, in my work scenario. They can't wrap their heads around this idea of having a high deductible. It's just like, that seems terrifying. That's like the Amalekites. I just can't do it. No, actually, it's financially advantageous in every way, but they instead still choose the much more expensive traditional plan. That's what it looks like to hear good news and then not believe it. There's got to be some catch. There's got to be, there's got to be something. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get, you know, caught and, and, and painted into a corner or something. I, I know it can't work, so I'm gonna go with what I know. I'm gonna go with the traditional plan. Good news doesn't do you any good if you don't believe it. The Israelites had very good news. They had the promise of a land that was broad. That's how it's described. It's broad. They're not confined to their little, I don't know what their living situation was like back in Egypt, but I can't imagine it was very spacious. I have a feeling they were pretty cramped as slaves. They're going to have a place that's broad. They can get some, some extra, they can go have their kids run out in fields safely. A place where they would be free from slave drivers. They could own their own stuff now. They're no longer answering to their masters, their harsh masters. It's a place where they would even enjoy fruit of labors. Uh, not only would they be laboring for someone else, they're not doing that anymore, they're actually enjoying fruit of labors that aren't their own. They're going in to possess cities and vineyards and gardens and houses that they didn't even build. That's what God's going to give them. It's a place flowing with milk and honey. There's abundance here. And they even receive, that's not just some you know, fanciful promise, they receive an eyewitness report from the spies who go up in there that this place really is just as good as God said it was. So there's, there's this 12 people coming back saying, yeah, it does flow with milk and honey. All 12 of them said that. And yet, they didn't listen with faith. They thought, this is too good to be true. There's some catch. We can't, we must be, we're going to die by the hands of the Amalekites who God actually already delivered them from in part, but there were still Amalekites in the land there. They didn't believe that God was going to give them land. Because of that, what happened? The message of a rest-filled land didn't benefit them. In fact, because of their unbelief, the Lord became angry with them, appropriately so, because they didn't believe his promise, and he, he even swore that they shall not enter his rest. 
Friends, we must not think we are unlike the Israelites. The same unbelief that was in their hearts can readily be in ours. Like the Israelites, we, we have received good news. We've received the news that God himself has come as a man to earth, as we sung about this morning, has died on a cross to forgive us all of our sins and has freed us from slavery to sin, just as the Egyptians, I'm sorry, just as the Israelites were freed from slavery to the Egyptians. We've received the happy report that Christ himself has gone to his father's house to prepare a room for us, a room of eternal rest, a place far better than the land of Canaan far better than the land flowing with milk and honey that's broad and, and wonderful and beautiful. And yet, even though we receive that news, that really good news, we can fail to hear it with faith. We can fail to believe that we are truly sinners in need of a Savior who must make us right before God. We can fail to believe that Christ is indeed preparing for us an eternal, fantastic home. If you've been hearing the good news of, of what Christ has done, of Christ dying for your sins, and, and, and you haven't genuinely put your faith and your trust in him alone for forgiveness, the news you hear benefits you nothing. There's no eternal rest for you if you don't believe what Christ has done. There's no happy ending. There's only God's wrath and his, and his promise that you shall not enter it. But God doesn't invite us to enter his rest based on our deservedness. That's the mercy of God. The Bible says we all fall short of God's standard. But rather, he brings us into his rest based only uh, on whether or not we, we trust and believe that Christ has done all that is necessary to make us right with God. That's his basis. If you haven't truly trusted in Christ, if you aren't banking on him alone to make you right with God, then do so today. Take heed of this warning that, that God gives you in his word um, uh, lest you fear, uh, or fear rather, lest any of you should fail to have seemed to reach God's rest. Lest any of you, you right here, this church, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach the amazing rest that God offers. Don't fail to reach it. Place your trust in Christ today. I, I, I pray that you do so. If you're already trusting Christ, Continue to, continue to do so. Trust him again. Trust him more. Hear the promises of God with fresh faith. Believe that Christ is indeed preparing a room for you in his Father's house, a room of eternal rest. It's that rest um, that God offers us, that the author of Hebrews now describes, because we've heard about it, what is it? That brings us to the second aspect of God's rest, which is the nature of God's rest. The nature of God's rest. Okay, so what exactly is the rest that the author of Hebrews wants to ensure that we don't miss out on? Verses 3 through 5 give us some insight. They give us some clues. Verse 3 says this, for whoever has believed, I'm sorry, we, for, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from, from the foundation of the world. Okay, so whereas Israel failed to enter God's rest due to unbelief, we, we who believe enter God's rest. 
Now, a quick but really important side note. The basis on which we enter God's rest is not our intelligence or our work ethic or our moral standards. No, the basis for entering God's rest is simply belief. It's trust. It says we who believe enter that rest, not we who figured it out enter that rest, or we who've got our act together enter that rest, or we who know better than others enter that rest. No. We who believe, we who accept that we are sinners who desperately need someone else to do something to get us out of our mess. It's knowing that you're a sinner who depends wholly upon God, must depend wholly upon God, to love you and to save you. That's it. That's the basis. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are the qualifications for receiving rest from Jesus, knowing that you're exhausted and that you're heavy laden, and then coming to Christ with all your burdens. Friends, that is happy news. May that humble us. Um, may we never forget that the only thing we bring to our salvation is our problems and our mess and our guilt and our unworthiness and our annoyance and our distractedness and our faithlessness and our patheticness. Christ brings rest. Amen. We, we haven't even answered the question yet of what God's rest really is, though. <laughs> We know that he gives it freely on the basis of faith alone. That is mercy. But what does he give? What is it? Okay, let's look at this. We know that the unbelieving Israelites didn't enter God's rest. Okay, we established that. They died in the wilderness. He says, you shall not enter my rest. That generation dies off. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They all die except for Caleb and Joshua, who are the two spies who came back and said, no, 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 come on. Let's go possess the land. God's with us. He's going to make it happen. Everybody else died. Okay, so unbelieving Israelites didn't enter God's rest. They didn't enter Canaan. Okay, but wait, we haven't entered Canaan either, right? So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he says that we enter God's rest? doesn't sound like he's talking about Canaan because we're not there. Well, he gives us a clue in the second half of verse 3. He writes, As I swore in my wrath, they, that's Israel, shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, so you see, God's rest wasn't limited to Canaan. It wasn't just for that location. In fact, it didn't even start there. It started back at the foundation of the world when God rested from his work. That's the author's point in verse 4. He says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. That's a quote from Genesis 1. Um, after God made all of creation, the author of Hebrews is stating that, that the rest is not just some restful place like Canaan. The rest we enter is God's own rest. It's his rest. This is probably the reason that the author of Hebrews quotes yet again uh, this passage in verse 5. He wants to make it clear that the, the rest that the Israelites failed to enter wasn't just Canaan. It wasn't just that that they failed to enter. They failed to enter God's rest. Verse 5 says, and again in this passage, 
they, or he said, they shall not enter my rest. So what is God's rest? Not just some rest, not just Canaan. What is God's rest? Well, God worked. He made the heavens and the earth and all living things, all the little creatures, every atom, every molecule across the universe. He made it in six days. And then after that, God rested. He stopped creating. He quit working. He took a step back, as it were, and enjoyed the fruit of his labor. The rest of God, it's, it's God's own enjoyment. It's his personal satisfaction. It's God, it's, it's kind of like after a long day of, when you, when you know you worked hard, <laughs> and then after that day, you sit down and you can grab your glass of tea or whatever it is that you do to relax, and you went, that was a good day. Got all that yard work done, you know? You look out and all the leaves are clear. Oh, that, was, that was good. I, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying the fruit of my labor. I'm satisfied. I am resting. Imagine that, but from God's perspective. He creates an entire universe from scratch, and at the crown of his creation is mankind, whom he said is, is very good, and then he steps back and goes, I'm just enjoying it now. I've made a good thing. This is, this is great. This is good. And that rest in, in then, uh, the, the first six days of creation, there's this rhythmic pattern in Genesis 1. On the sixth day, you know, God did this or that. And then there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So there's this closure to these days. On the seventh day, there's no closure. It just says God rested on the seventh day. It never says there is evening and morning the seventh day. It hasn't ended. God's rest is forever. He enjoys what he has done. It's a complete rest. It's a fulfilling rest. Now, I, can, I think we know what it's, what it's like to not... Oh, well, actually, I should pull back. I forgot to mention something. Verse 4 reminds us that God rested not just from his works. It says God rested from all his works, from everything that he had done. I, I think we know what it's like to not rest from all of our works, right? It's your day off. You're trying to rest. Then you remember you've got those unread emails in your inbox, and you've been putting off for like three or four days, and they, they hover over you. You become unsettled. You, you see those weeds in your garden that you haven't pulled. You forgot that you haven't done the side yard or whatever it is. And it sours your Saturday because you thought, I was done. Oh, no, there's still more work to do. You have a paper due after the weekend, and the deadline just haunts you. You can't, you can't get out from under remembering, hey, you're trying, to, you're trying to watch this movie, but that paper is due on Saturday or whatever, right? Um, or Monday. That's what it looks like to not rest from all of our works. But the rest that God enjoys and the rest that we enter, the rest that he invites us into, it's a total rest. It's a perfect rest. It's complete. It's final. It's satisfying. God didn't tweak creation on the seventh day. He didn't go back and say, oh, I'm going to make up a little touch-up on these microorganisms and the way they work. You know, I didn't realize I need to change that. No, he's deeply and fully satisfied, and he deeply and fully rests from all his works. 
This is the rest, the perfect rest of a God who completed his perfect work that's available to us. It's not just God enjoys that, well, good for him. (laughs) No, we are invited up into it. It's available to us. That's the point that the author now makes. Brings us to our third aspect of God's rest, the availability of God's rest, the availability of God's rest. We're going to read verses 6 and 7 again, and then we're going to break it down because it doesn't necessarily make sense the first time you read it per se. So we're going to break it down. After establishing okay, that unbelieving Israel failed to enter God's rest, right? That's established. The author of Hebrews writes this, verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So let's follow the logic here. He says that God's rest remains for some to enter it. Why? Because unbelieving unbelieving Israel, to whom God's rest was promised, failed to enter it because of their disobedience. So his rest hasn't been entered yet still remains for some to enter it. Um, but so, so what was God's... A note, what did God respond to, or how did God respond to Israel when they failed to enter his rest? Did he say, oh, that offer expired, I retract, um, you know, I retract what I said, you know, you had your shot, um, you're all done for. In fact, that's kind of, he made something of a, of a statement to that to Moses, even when Israel failed. They, they rebelled. They said, no, we cry. There's these big, uh, scary you know, um, um, inhabitants in the land. And God says, I'm done with them. I'm going to kill them all. Moses, I'm going to make a nation of you instead. And the Moses says, no, 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 Lord, for the sake of your name, for your people, and for the sake of your name among other peoples, keep, keep your people. Don't, don't wipe them out. And God doesn't. He, in his mercy, I'm losing my place, in his mercy, he appoints another day. He doesn't say, oh, well, too bad, you missed it. He appoints yet another day for rest. What day does he appoint for that rest? Is it another shot at Canaan? No, he appoints today as the day to enter his rest. Now, when the author says today, that's the Hebrew author, he's quoting from Psalm 95. That was written by King David, okay? King David, though, lived hundreds of years after Moses and the generation of those Israelites who wandered in the wilderness and died. King David penned Psalm 95 from within the promised land. He had arrived. The people he was writing to were currently living in the land that was flowing with milk and honey. They were there. They were in that land of rest. And yet David warns his audience, his audience, the ones living in the promised land, to not harden their hearts today. So wait, okay. Had Israel, under David's reign, not entered God's rest? I mean, hadn't Joshua, who succeeded Moses, he was one of the good spies who went and came back and said, yes, we can take the land, God is with us. Hadn't he led them victoriously into that land? Didn't they overthrow their enemies and possess the land and enjoy the fruit of all the labors that they didn't put in? Hadn't he given them rest? And just a side note, the author of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews. He's writing to the Jewish people. 
if you had asked a Jew at this time, I would, I would pretty much wager if you asked them, did Joshua lead people into God's rest? They'd say, yeah. They possessed. They went in. You know, they, they surrounded Jericho and the walls fell down. That was the first of many victories that they enjoyed the land that finally God gave us. But the author of Hebrews says something remarkable in verse 8. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Implication, God spoke of another day later on because Joshua did not give them rest in Israel. That's remarkable. That, that, that may not shake our brains quite as much as theirs, but to hear that, to hear Joshua didn't give God's people rest, and Joshua led them into the land that God had promised them. What? The author is saying, not only did that first generation of Israel die off, okay, well, obviously they didn't receive the rest, they died in the wilderness, but the next generation and every future generation of Israel, the ones who enjoyed and entered that promised land, they didn't receive God's rest. So what is he saying? He's saying that the true rest of God is independent from that promised land, from a physical location. It's not found in Canaan. It isn't obtained in a life full of success and prosperity. The promise of God wasn't fulfilled ultimately through Joshua and Canaan. It's fulfilled only through Christ Jesus another king who would come later after David. He alone welcomes us into the peaceful and perfect satisfaction that God has in all of his works. Christ ushered in a rest that Joshua never did. And it's his rest that ultimately satisfies. How we can get caught up, I can get caught up thinking, maybe like the Israelites, that true rest lies in success and in life circumstances, maybe a particular location. I can think, I'm, I'm guilty of this, thinking, yeah, when I have that townhouse, <laughs> that'll be it. We've arrived. We're adults. Rest isn't based on physical life circumstances. It's not, um, it's, even, for, even for Israel, who lived in a country who was just, that was described by God himself in Ezekiel 20. This is God describing it, so you know, if he says it, it's got to be true. He calls Israel the most glorious of all lands. Okay, It's better than wherever else you'd rather go. Scotland or Argentina or beats me, wherever you want to go. It's the most glorious of all lands. The offer of, uh, offer of God's rest, it still stands, but that rest isn't bound to worldly set of circumstances. No. God's rest started well before Canaan, was even, a, was even a land to consider. It started the dawn of creation, and it continues on to eternity because God's rest never ends. R. Kent Hughes describes God's never-ending rest as an everlasting satisfaction. And friends, that everlasting satisfaction is available when? Today. It's available right now. It was available hundreds of years after Moses failed to lead people into Israel. It was hundreds of years after Joshua actually led them into that land. It's available to the people who, to whom uh, the author of Hebrews wrote, and it's available to us today. It's available to everyone. Do you feel perhaps like it's not available to you, that maybe you're behind in your career and you think, I can't rest because I've got so much school to do to catch up or, or jobs to get? 
Are you overwhelmed with schoolwork and you just see no end to the assignments? Are you weary from raising your children? Do you wish you lived somewhere else or somewhere better? Friends, God's rest is available to you today. Verse 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That is, when we rightly understand the rest that God invites us into, to enjoy his eternal personal satisfaction, that he is satisfied not just with creation, but that he's satisfied with us, his new creation that Christ bought and that Christ made uh, worthy of God's honor only because of what he did on the cross, when we understand that, then we're able to rest from our works as God did from his. We're able to stop striving in a worldly sense. We're able to stop fretting. We're able to enjoy rest because we know that God does from his. If he can rest, then so can we. But that's easier said than done. Um, And that's why the author of Hebrew leaves us with an exhortation. The exhortation, that's well, that's point four. The exhortation regarding God's rest. Here's the exhortation. In light of all that the author of Hebrews has said regarding God's rest, verse 11, let us therefore strive. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what do we do? Aware of the warning and the nature and the availability of God's rest, we strive for it. That is, we labor for it. We work hard at entering it. Now, that might seem really counterintuitive, right? You might think rest has nothing to do with laboring. Why are we laboring to enter rest? But this is what the Word of God says. His invitation to God's rest calls us to strive to enter it. Now, let me be clear. This striving isn't, it's not a restless striving. It's, it's uh, to, to be right with God or, or to deserve his blessings. It's not an anxious striving that doubts the goodness of God or the love of God or a fretful striving that, that says, if I don't do good enough, God must really be displeased with me. He, he's not eternally satisfied with me. It's not that kind of striving. There's no fear in this striving. But we already heard that the basis uh, for enjoying God's rest isn't our works or our merits or our efforts. No, the basis, again, for God's rest is the grace of God given to us through faith. Okay, so we're not going to get into this rest by striving on our own effort, okay? But we enter through faith. However, faith takes effort, Faith is hard work. It is hard work to believe the promises of God, especially when they don't seem true. Think of the spies who scoped out the land of Canaan. They could have been more aware, in fact, 10 of the 12 were, more aware of the fortified cities and, and the, big, the big old people who were like giants to them. They said, we, we felt like grasshoppers in their eyes. And in fact, they thought we were like grasshoppers in their eyes as well. We're so small. You'd be so aware of the fortified cities and the enemy forces rather than aware of the amazing land that God promised them. And most of the spies fell prey to that. 
but Caleb and Joshua, the only two spies who encouraged the people of God to go up and take possession of that land. It wasn't easy for them. They had to exercise faith. They had to take their souls to work and go, okay, I just saw some of the biggest dudes I've ever seen. I wouldn't want to play football against them, much less fight them in war. And yet, I remember, hold on, I remember God delivered us from the Egyptians. God delivered us from the Amalekites. Will he not do it again? Has he not promised that? They put effort in to believe that God would be true to his promise to give them that land. They put in effort. And we too must put in effort to believe God's promises. We must actively fight the fight of faith. There's a reason it's called the fight of faith. It's not just like the stroll of faith. It's a fight. There's spiritual warfare going on here. We must actively fight the doubts that say that God isn't good or that God doesn't love us. Those are lies. We must fight those. We must work at reminding our souls that God is satisfied with us. He's satisfied with us because of what Christ has done. We must work to believe that. But this work doesn't leave us empty. This work leaves us full because God is satisfied with us in Christ if you have put your faith in him. Just like the Israelites battled the enemy nations, they literally had to battle to get into that rest, take up swords and kill some people. They had to battle into that rest. We are also at war with an enemy who wants to keep us from enjoying God's rest. There's happy news. The more we work at trusting God, the more we enjoy his rest. R. Kent Hughes says this. He says, our experience of rest is proportionate to our trusting in him. I think of my son, Josiah. Um, He sometimes wakes up at night in a panic. He did this last night. He's not in danger, but he thinks he is, and he freaks out. He can become even hysterical. He's just crying and catching his breath and freaking out, and where's life, and I'm not okay. Where's life? Yeah, well, that's kind of how it feels when he's crying. (laughs) But when I pick him up and I console him, as he catches his breath and he calms down, he trusts that all is well because he's with his daddy. When he's with me, and when he trusts that I've got him, he can rest. So it is with us believers. We can become hysterical with fear. We can think we're in danger, when in reality, God has us. The truth is that God himself carries us in his arms. All is well, for we are with our heavenly Father. We can trust him to take care of us. And in that, we find rest. 1 Peter 5, 7 calls us to cast all our anxieties on God because he cares for us. That's why we can do it. So are you anxious about your health? Cast that care onto God. Are you fearful about your relationship status? Cast that care onto God. Are you worried about your finances? Cast that care onto God. Is anything else hovering, burdening your soul? Cast it onto God. He cares for you in Christ. If you're a believer, God has you. He's keeping you. He will be sure. He will be sure to bring you into 
the full experience of his everlasting rest. We're going to be with him one day. We will see Jesus face to face and be in the house that he's currently preparing for us. He's preparing a room right now for every single one of you who have put your faith in Christ. We're going to enjoy that. The more we believe that today, the more we work and fight at believing the truth that God is for us and with us and good to us and loves us and cherishes us and is satisfied in us because of what Christ has done, the more we'll enjoy rest. And even from our own work, verse 10 again says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. When we understand that God welcomes us and his eternal happy favor, when we and in, in that, when we forsake our, our own independence, our, our sense of independence, and when we, we cast ourselves upon God holy, when we give up the hopes of our own righteousness, when we stop striving in worldly terms, when we stop striving in those, in those, quote, spiritual categories that really don't honor God because we're trying to make ourselves right before him, we're trying to prove, look, aren't you so proud of me? He says, no, not because of what you've done, but because you're my son, I love you, and I love the works you do, but not, not, not those to win my favor. Oh, you already have it. You're my child. All is well. I've got you. Amen. Then we can enjoy the rest that God offers, both the spiritual rest of knowing at any time God loves me, but it also helps us enjoy the physical rest. We can take that day off. I've got so much to do. Lord, haven't you called me to, to all these different things? I'm supposed to be a good you know, uh, wife or husband or son or daughter or friend or employee or church member, whatever it is. But we can understand that if God rests and invites us into that, that not only can we stop striving in terms of the spiritual, trying to win God's favor, we can also rest from our works and say, I can take a break because God's got me. I can take a break, just as God took a break from his work. The author doesn't want us to miss out on this rest that God offers. He wants us to daily strive, not in fear, but in faith, to remember and believe and enjoy the fact that God Almighty has called us friends through Christ. So we heed Christ's beautiful command. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, help our hearts believe. Help our hearts believe your posture toward us in Christ. Help our hearts believe that you are eternally satisfied, not just with your work in creation, but with your work in the new creation, with the new people that you have made. Help us trust and believe that you are our Father who loves us and cares for us and will meet every need and will see us through this life and will carry us and give us the strength and the grace that we need and that you are, in fact, preparing a place for us where we will fully cease from work and rest in all that you've done. Help us believe those things today. Help us fight uh, the doubts and the, the discouragements and the lies and, and the enemy who wants to keep us from enjoying the fact that you are for us and with us and that you love us and help us fight to believe all that you've told us in your word. 
Give us, give us that strength to fight and give us the rest that comes from knowing that you have accomplished all that was necessary. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.